We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a Goodbye 
This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Arsene Wenger is my dad, uh, or Yankee Gunner. It is a very special edition, a crisis edition, if you will, of the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast, and the whole crew is here. Tim is on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Paul is on Twitter at Posn in my pants. Hello, Paz. Hello. Clive is on Twitter at Clive P-A-F-C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. I think... Uh, in respect to the significance of the moment, I'm going to set the sarcasm and tone of uh, humor aside for a moment and honestly say that it is a very emotional day for Arsenal supporters. And whether it is a day that you have prayed for in uh, the recent past or a day that you have been dreading, the reality of it happening has hit a lot of people, myself included, a lot harder than I expected that it would. Uh, it is an emotional day that we get the announcement that Arsene Wenger is stepping down at the end of the season. I think... There's some question as to whether it is entirely by choice or a choice driven by uh, communications he's had with the club. Maybe we can come to that a little bit. But I just want to start with the overall emotional reaction and surprise to the announcement. So, Tim, um, you have come Mm -hmm. on board with the idea of late that Arsene Wenger needed to go, that change was needed. Mm -hmm. But I I think it is fair to say that throughout his tenure, you have adored the man. You have written an article Mm -hmm. about him basically being a proxy for your father in some respects. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious emotionally how you have found this announcement uh, to affect you. Just strange, surreal, quite frankly. It's a bit like um, the, the only comparison I could find was, you know, the queen dying. Um, and that's not to say I'm, you know, particularly attached to to, to Queen you're, Elizabeth. You're not advocating it. No, <laughs> no. Um, okay. but you know, it's one of those things, um, or maybe like Bruce Forsyth dying. I don't know. You know, it's coming for a long time, and you know you're getting closer and closer to it. But at the same time, um, it it never quite feels like it's coming. I don't know. M- maybe a better, more personal analogy is when I had braces on my teeth. And I was told I'd only have them for six months and I had them for two and a half years. And after about 18 months, I thought, well, I know these are going to come off one day. But honestly, I've given up on the idea that they're ever going to come off. But I know it's going to happen, you know. So it's it's that kind of really weird kind of feeling of something you've been gearing up for and talking about and even hoping for um, for a little while. But when it actually happens, especially given the context here where. There was absolutely no inkling of this whatsoever. There were no whispers about this until about 10 minutes before the announcement dropped. Absolutely nothing. Just rumour and counter-rumour, but nothing that said, you know, 
I don't think a lot of people would have been surprised if you'd said I was going at the end of the season, but nobody said this is going to be announced two days before a fairly inconsequential home game against West Ham. So that that kind of added to the shock. For me personally, um, the minute that the announcement dropped, I was just walking into back-to-back meetings and I was just thinking to myself, fucking hell, I really don't need this. I, I need to like go and sit somewhere quietly on my own and process this. Instead, I've got to go and like chair a meeting and my mind really, really wasn't on it. And it was just, um, I don't want to compare it to like a, you know, a tragedy or a grief or anything like that. But it's it's got that kind of shock value, you know, something you know that's going to happen. But when it comes, you don't really know how to deal with it. I always had an idea that I would feel, you know, what I've been feeling all day, which is sentimental and emotional and um, one of the things that's that's really pleased me about today, and this might just be my little bubble, I don't know, but I think overwhelmingly, both from Arsenal fans and you know the mainstream media and everything, the reaction has been to think about and talk about and be effusive about his successes, the positives, and you know what a nice man he was, which which I don't think is insignificant as well, and. Um, and that that makes me positive, um, actually, for the for the kind of for the future and his. You know, we we won't know about his legacy for some years yet. History will, will decide that. But you know, it just made me think. I just had this feeling that all of the bad feeling instantly just kind of washed away, and that people are really behind um, the last few games in the Europa League. I had to ring up and get my Atletico Madrid away tickets today. And, um, you know, I, I really wish that Arsenal would have announced this a day later because the box office, and I have a friend who works in the bo- box office, they have been absolutely off their feet all day. Mm. Because even though it's sold out, people are trying to get tickets for the Burnley game. And it's it's like one of those things, everyone knows it's sold out, but they're all just ringing up on the off chance. Um, and, and, and that kind of tells you a lot about what a kind of epoch-making and era-defining day this is and so the the emotional reaction has kind of gone from shock to like a lot of sentimentality and emotion and you know we're recording at it's half past eight on friday evening and i don't doubt that in about four hours i'm going to be on my back on the sofa um a few more beers in than i am already probably watching the invincibles dvd crying myself to sleep now to be fair I will also probably be on my back crying, but that's because it's date night with my wife, and that's usually how that ends. So, you know, different reasons. You know, it's funny you talk about, um, you know, the the impact of this announcement and what it's meant and just the length of time he's been there. And for me personally, I think it's it's such a signifier to eras of my life. I mean, he is a touchstone Mm. of of a period that, that was really an era of my life. And what I mean by this, I was born in Chicago. Nobody wants to hear this section, but I'm going to do it anyway. I was born in Chicago, and as a result, I I am a Chicago sports fan. And really some of my earliest sporting memories, when I was old enough to really process them, were the Chicago Bulls of Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player to ever live, one of the greatest athletes to ever live, and really was the idol of my childhood. And in 98, he won his sixth and final NBA title and retired. And in 98, I had just graduated from college. Uh, Now everyone knows how old I am. So um, at that time, I had started working in London. I had started to understand a little bit about, oh, soccer isn't soccer. It's actually football, and it's actually fucking amazing. And 
I love this team called the Arsenal, and I'm going to start to follow them more and, and fell in love with Arsenal. And so my childhood was very much Michael Jordan, and then I, I sort of graduated from basketball to football and adopted Arsenal, and Arsene Wenger became the, the symbol of my manhood. Not that I have much manhood, but what little manhood I have. <laughs> And has taken me through my adult life. And now I'm a father. Uh, you know, I'm a parent. I, I have a toddler and Arson is leaving. And there's this, this next stage of my life where I'm going to be a decrepit old bastard. But, like, it really is interesting because I, I see him as being this, this ever-present in my adult life. And really the, mm. the coming of age from graduating college to becoming an adult to getting married to having a child. Um, and, and all the while supporting Arsenal with him at the helm. It is, it is an incredible transition to make just life-wise and it really bookends not just a sporting period but but a life period so paul i mean it, it is easy to get maudlin and overdramatic about this but when you're talking about such stretches of time it's it's hard not to i mean are you surprised by this and and how do you feel the reaction has been to it generally by fans by players i mean it seems to me that even the most virulent arson out people uh, and I, I put myself in the camp of someone who wanted him out, but certainly was never resorting to abuse. It seems that now the mood is shifting to love and support and admiration and reflection on on really what he's meant to the club. Well, yeah, and anybody who hasn't uh, switched to that mode is a fucking idiot. Yeah, no I'd second that. You'd yeah. have to be right down the far end of the spectrum. Uh, pretty fringe not to be able to find... Uh, good emotions to have about that man. Um, I, you know, my reaction to it is it's kind of, uh, I think like everybody a bit confused, especially for dudes. Like, uh, we're not really in t beyond two or three uh, core emotions that dudes use a lot. There's a whole bunch of emo emotions that we kind of forget we have and get stirred up. And like, I'm just in this mode where I'm pretty emotional but I couldn't tell you what those emotions are. They're all just kind of, it's like somebody took a big spoon and stirred a pot and all the stuff at the bottom of it suddenly starts coming up and you're trying to make sense of it. And, and I don't know what I feel. I mean, obviously I love the man. Obviously we worked out, we all decided, or you could call it worked out, but I think it's decided at different times that the time was right for him to go. Basically everybody at this point has, has worked out that it was going to be the right thing. And so there's a very strong streak in me, which confuses me a little bit, that I'm, I'm kind of happy and relieved um, from the sense of Arson and the club and where the team's at. Because this is, given, it's one of those, you're at where you're at. Given mm -hmm. where we're at, this is, it's a weird thing to say, the perfect time, but it's the perfect time. Had he done this last year, and we'd fortuitously gone on to win the FA Cup, it would have been a near-perfect ending. Um, and who knows, maybe we can turn this into a truly kind of perfect victory lap for him. But certainly, uh, it'll change the mood. I mean, if the, the tie against Atletico uh, had gone badly and he hadn't announced this, I mean, my God, how ugly. Whereas... This gives us a little robustness if the first leg in the first half isn't going so good. I don't think it's going to matter that much in terms of the support level. It's going to be, it should hopefully be raucous and maybe carry us on into the second half of that game and carry us forward into the next match. So it's kind of perfect from a victory lap standpoint, yeah. perfect from 
the arson standpoint, I think uh, it prevents. It, I think we were very close to a point where everything we did from here in was was going to impact the relationship, at least in the short term, between manager and and supporters and club. And um, I'd also kind of like to give some props to the supporters. Uh, it's an ugly business. It's a messy business. It's kind of like politics. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, it, it's not like everybody's going to act perfectly and nobody can say we're perfectly is but by and large arsenal supporters have been very very respectful of the manager even in their disrespect if you if you compare yeah. measures of i mean disrespect. there's always outliers and but you you should not yeah. measure a group by its by its outliers yeah. by no. its extremists and, and if you compare how other other supporters have registered their dissatisfaction um i mean it's it, it's i think you know, I wasn't one of them. Uh, I would say I was on the other side of things for most of the period of time. But I still thought that, by and large, people, our supporters handled themselves uh, relatively classily compared to. And I, I know if you're on the terraces and I know if you're at away games, it ain't that pure. But I'm just talking on a relative basis. I, well, I think overall people have done pretty well. Let me say uh, this. While... Sorry, go registering ahead, their mm -hmm. discontent and while registering to the club uh, kind of in the face of ours and that they think it's time to change. It was it was always going to be a bit ugly, messy, difficult. You know, it is kind of like politics. It's just it's not a pure it's not a pure activity registering discontent. It, we're not all on the same page. Right. We don't all get there at the same time. We don't all express it in the same way. And it's always done on high emotion. So it's not exactly like you're writing a letter in cold blood. And drunk. I think overdone, <laughs> we've done okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and losing, probably. Well, right. Look, I, and, and what I would say is there have been a few ugly moments, but by and large, yes, the, the way that discontentment has been expressed, I think, has overall, in totality, been reasonably respectful. On any now, relative basis. Now, yeah. I don't know that it's always been respectful as in between the supporters themselves, nope. if you follow me. Um, but nope. as towards arson, yes, I think mostly that's fair. You know, there's the ugly moment. At the, was it at Stoke on the train platform? There were a few yeah. little moments that, that you maybe say that wasn't called for. But I think certainly the broader media statement that he's suffered some indignity that he didn't deserve, I think that's unnecessarily dramatic. The fact remains that performances had faltered, that the fans registered their dissatisfaction with the performances. But what I will say is it should be... And we gave them years. Yeah, of course. And I don't mean, I, I don't mean that ungratefully, but there was... There's a respect and a connection and a bond there that I think covers 90-something percent of fans. And I'm not saying everything that was done was classy and dignified by the fans. I'm just saying on any relative basis compared to any other club who were parting ways with their manager, uh, if you want to say this, our disrespect was far more respectful 95% of the time than, than would typically sure. be the case. Sure. Uh, you know, and I, I think... Now it should just be chance of one Arsene Wenger for 90 minutes for every game that we have left in the season. Yeah. Because the fact is, the reason you register discontentment, uh, the reason you, you boo, the reason you jeer, is to express that this isn't okay. Something has to change. It's not good enough. Well, he's leaving. He's leaving. So booing him now does nothing. It does nothing but say, I don't like the man. Because it... He's gone. You, you know, you don't have to tell anybody you want him to go anymore because he's going. So now any discontentment that you 
that you you know uh, perform at the stadium is really just a performance against the man and no longer about change. So it wouldn't make any sense to me at this point now. I tell you, you what would be really it. cool. Yeah, yeah I, on that point, I think a lot of people will be at the stadium or, or at the game and surprise themselves at levels of emotion and attachment to they they've had to a man that some of them have felt incredibly negatively about for the next couple of years sure and that'll be a beautiful thing all overall but i i think some people are going to be shocked when you have to break uh, up with someone even when you know the yep. relationship has to end the actual ending of the relationship is a very sad and emotional moment um you you're right your left brain may tell you it's time for the relationship to end but your right brain will still find that a challenge i i want to bring clive in i i actually thought about not bringing him in at all uh, because of his you. comment when, when, when I uh, talked about Michael Jordan, he simply sent me LeBron and then the LOL emoji, as in LeBron is somehow better than Michael Jordan, which is, of course, ridiculous. ridiculous. Yeah, not, not even remotely. Let's accurate. not go there, right? Let's not no, look at the stats. Let's, let's, well, we, no, we, let's just not go there. But no. Another day, another day. You, you can bring your advanced analytics, uh, and I will hold up six rings, and we can just wave at each other from across the room. Anyway, look. Okay. Um, so, so first things first, Clive, I want you to put on sort of your business manager hat. Um, oh. which you wear most of the time anyway. And and dig into a little bit of what Gazita said and what the manager said, because the question I, I, I want to ask you, and, and certainly you can get into what this has meant to you and, and your reaction to it, but Gazidis made some comments. I think uh, he was more than happy to get in front of the cameras and make himself a part of this moment, um, despite us all knowing that really he probably didn't want Arsenal to be there this season. But there were some words in there and some phrases in there that, you know, where Arsene said he was leaving where he hinted at, you know, and after, after discussions with the club, how much of this do you think is purely Arsene Wenger's decision and how much of this is driven by the fact that he wanted it to be uh, put forward as his position, as his decision, but was not going to be his decision if he did not take it himself? So um, that's very astute of you, right? That's exactly the way I was going to answer in a more corporate way because I have a, a corporate background. So when I when I look at this, I always look at how big organizations handle change. And this process has been going on since last year. I think um, Gazidis may not have won the war last year, but what he did, he started to turn the ship around so that we could affect change. We could not do this last year because we weren't ready. We did not have the people behind the scenes. They weren't ready. They weren't modern. There's been 10 or 11 major backroom uh, uh, appointments since last summer. And they are in place, I've said before, they are sitting there very, very quiet, waiting. So I always felt when he got his two-year contract, it was really a one-year contract. Two years was to keep people at bay, so we could have some stability to go through the season. But like you guys have sort of alluded to, when the moment comes, it's still a moment that we've spoken about on countless pods. We all knew it was coming. We weren't sure if it was this summer or the next. Most of us thought it'd be this summer, but we all knew it was coming. But when it broke this morning... I was working from home today, so I've been watching Sky all day, right? So when it broke, my first emotion was, oh, my God, right? That's that's happening. And then you start to see the reaction. And then you realize that the whole day has been turned over to Arsenal Football Club on every sports media. Wenger was trending number one worldwide on all social media. Right, so, and then you realise this is now. This is the biggest story of the season. Now, with the anticlimax of Man City's win league win at the weekend, just because the way it happened, Man City won the league, and they they weren't given a fifth of the time that Wenger leaving has been given. 
right? So they no doubt get their time at the end of the season. But I reckon just the way it happened, they weren't given the the sort of plaudits they deserve. This story has absolutely exploded in the UK. And it's brought into light the club and how it's handled change. Now, from a Kazidis point of view, from a corporate point of view, the way he delivered that message, in my opinion, was top class. Right. So I don't expect anyone to agree with me. People may say, well, was this required? But that's the way Arsenal do it. That's the way we put an exclamation point on a situation. That's the way we reestablish values, remind people what we stand for. And at times, I have wavered. I have wavered this year about our values and the reasons why I support the club are very much value-based. And I have wavered. I thought we'd been asleep. I thought we'd been asleep at the wheel. And suddenly we awaken and we do something with perfect timing perfect delivery and is followed up by multiple messages on the on the website this has been planned this doesn't just happen this has been planned for many weeks and it was always going to happen on a friday there was a little leak a little while ago charlie nicholas said something that something's going to happen on friday about two three weeks ago and it didn't happen and it happened this friday and the timing could not be better We've got a home game for people to digest on, on Sunday and we've got the biggest game of the season on, on Thursday. And there'll be no red seats visible on TV on those games. I guarantee you of that. Because it's just gone it's just gone mad. There's just no tickets out there. Fortunately I've got a ticket for Thursday, so I'll be there. <laughs> so um so I'm I'm pretty good and I'll be having a don't, good little drink don't beforehand. Boo. Oh, I never boo, right? So <laughs> but but what but what happens, you know, I will say you're never sure how you're going to feel. And I've had a lot of conflicting emotions. I'm not saying I was massively strong on, e on either way, but we, we're sensible people, right? Change was coming and we know that that was going to happen. But it still doesn't stop you being conflicted. Not that I want him to stay. Then you suddenly get thrown in front of you the last 22 years of your life on, on various screen clips and videos and comments. And if you've got anything about you, it makes you reflect, right? It makes you reflect about how you feel, how other people feel, how the club feels, how the man feels. And um, the human side, it's, 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 been quite, it's been quite good to see. But when it comes down to it, we're, we're a football club and, uh, you know, we're talking basketball, right? We know about the, the 76ers and their process, right? Trust the process. So I'm looking at Arsenal, I'm thinking, well, the process has really, really started. We suspected it had started last summer. Now the biggest cog is, is going and the process is starting. And what excites me is I don't know what's going to happen next. And um, I'm excited while, while reflecting as well at the same time. Yeah, well said. You know, I think the big difference for me with Arsene Wenger versus someone like Jose Mourinho, Jose Mourinho is an unsavory cunt. But when he's winning, he's <coughs> your unsavory cunt. When he stops winning, it pulls that, sh that curtain back and you're like, holy shit, our manager is a huge cunt. Um, but Arsene Wenger isn't a cunt. Arsene Wenger is a, a thoughtful, erudite uh, idealist. He's an avuncular, sweet man in many ways. I, you know, I, I don't mean to paint him as a saint because he has his flaws, of course. But even when he's losing, he's easy to love. And I think that has made this harder for a lot of people. If Arsene Wenger was the cunt that Jose Mourinho was, I think the last few corners of his support would have eroded much quicker. But he's a hard man not to like. And I think... Well, I, I think we have the title of the pod there, Elliot. Uh Hard man not to like, or something about Jose Mourinho's no. a cunt. <laughs> Elliot, 
finally admits Arsene Wenger is not a cunt. There you go. Fine. <laughs> Great. Thanks. I have never suggested that he was. Um, Tim, <laughs> let's get into a, a, a little of his career here. And <clears throat> I obviously it goes without saying that his greatest achievement, the legacy for which he will be remembered the most, uh, is going unbeaten for a season and, in fact, for 49 games. But <clears throat> putting that to one side, what was his greatest achievement in your mind other than being invincible? And what was maybe his biggest failure or disappointment? So his biggest achievement to me, because despite the amount of trophies he won, um, I actually think, and I try to say this delicately, I think in his early years he should have won more trophies. Um, I think that Invincibles team should have won more. I think there are a couple of league titles we should have won. I think there's some FA Cups we should have won that we didn't. And I know, you know, with a big club, you Definitely. go to finals you go to semi-finals and you don't win them all. But I, I really think Arsenal missed a few trophies. Tim, I've got to jump years. in. 2003 should have won, should have been three leagues. Yeah, uh, yeah. And Absolutely. 2004, let's not mess about. That Chelsea game broke my heart, mate. And we should yeah. have won European Cup 2004. And that should have been yeah, our double. Yeah, yeah. Well. UEFA Cup final, FA Cup final 2001. You know, 98, yeah. 99 when, you know, we lose to Leeds and miss the lead. Like, there, there, there were some oh, misses. There, and like there was I some debuffs. <laughs> you you always get those misses like Ferguson had them as well but so the thing is I suppose to answer this question maybe a little bit differently is when I think of Arsene Wenger and what I think his real legacy will be obviously there's trophies there's the stadium training ground everything he revolutionized but um I think about players um and I think Arsene will as well when he looks back I think he might look back on that more than the trophies so when you ask me his biggest achievements um, I'd say Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira, Cesc Fabregas, Robin Van Persie, Robert Pires, Colo Torre, um, Ashley Cole. You know, some of these these players that we've seen. And this this is one of the things that people always mention. And actually, I kind of think that they sometimes mention it first. They mention some of the football we've seen and some of the players we've seen. And that gets mentioned even more than you know, an incredible achievement like winning the amount of FA Cups he did and winning the league unbeaten. It's, you know, the style and the brand of football, but but the recruitment, particularly in the first half of his reign, some of those players he plucked from absolutely nowhere. And, um, you know, in, in terms of his influence on the wider game, he, he unfortunately for him in many ways, because he lost the competitive edge, he woke the whole of England up to the idea that, you know, you could go to, like, Liga, you could go to the Ivory Coast, you could go to the Eredivisie and and find these players. And he found loads of them and he, he got them together and he created something really, really special. And when I think about some of the best performance, Arsenal performances I've ever seen, um, they came in seasons where we didn't win the league. So I think of... In 2002-03, I think that's some of the best football we've ever played before that invincible season. But what happened was I think we were a bit too idealistic maybe that season. And when you look at the invincible season, we became a lot more pragmatic. When we were drawing 1-1 away from home with 15 minutes to go, we took the striker off and put a midfielder on. We closed out the game, which helped us win the league. But the season before that, I, you know, I felt like some of the football was amazing. And there was a week where... We played PSV Eindhoven away and beat them 4-0. And it's just one of the best, most fluent performances I've seen from any team. 
And then three days later, we went to Ellen Road and beat Leeds 4-1. And honestly, it could have been 10-0 um, that day. But we got to we get we got to about 2-0 and we did what Arsenal do. And we, we kind of, you know, we played with our food um, a little bit. But, but some of those performances, some of those games, some of those players, I, you know, I think those are the things that will really, really be remembered. So I think that, Maybe in 10 years' time, yes, people will think about the Invincible season. They'll think about all those FA Cups. But what will they think immediately after that? They'll think, wow, Patrick Vieira. Wow, we had, you know, I, I remember when we had Thierry Henry, the chant from the fans was always, we've got the best player in the world. And, you know, for a club like Arsenal, who are a big club, but not the biggest club, that was almost like a statement of disbelief as much as anything. That was a wow, we've got the best, like the best footballer in the world is playing for us and we're watching him every week. And whether, you know, we, we plucked him from, not obscurity, we got him from Juventus, but we got a, a boy really down on his luck, down on his confidence, a winger um, from Juventus. And we saw, you know, the, the, the finest striker um, I still think we've ever seen in the Premier League Um and yeah, so so when I think about his biggest achievements, I, I, that's what I, I think um, he'll be really be remembered for. Biggest disappointment, I'll, I'll go quick on this. Um, I, I think the 2011 League Cup final against Birmingham, I think something was broken that day that was never quite fixed. I think that people kind of accepted those lean years with the trophies in the early stadium years. People understood and we had this, you know, Project Youth thing. I think that Project Youth thing fell apart that day. And um, the cruel irony of it was was that Fabregas was injured and couldn't play. And Van Persie went off injured, scoring a goal. So the two jewels in the crown, we were missing. And that, and let's have it straight, that's why we didn't win. Um, if, if Fabregas and Van Persie had played 90 minutes, Birmingham would have been blown out of sight. But... Um, yeah, I, I feel like that's the day that maybe things started to turn a little bit and people thought, right, OK, back on the map, we'll get the League Cup, we'll get that winning feeling back. And it didn't quite happen. And then you get Fabregas and Nasri leaving, then you get Van Persie leaving. And I, I, I think something was broken that day that was never quite fixed. Yeah, well said. Paul, uh, accomplishment, disappointment? Um, so I thought I was going to be in real trouble there. With you, with you removing the Invincibles and uh, Stillman's encyclopedic knowledge, basically going through our whole second Arson's Arsenal career. There, he, he listed but the I entire history one. of Arson at Arsenal, did, yeah. and then left you to pick whatever. So, like, would your biggest disappointment be like the three-three against Bournemouth in January last year? I mean, you know, that's, that's pretty much all that's left. You know? No, he, he actually mentioned that. Did one. he? Okay, yeah. I thought he might. No. Yeah. All right, so here it is. Here's what I think. The best the best things in sports are rivalries, aren't they? Otherwise, it's what the fuck does it all mean? Who who are you playing against? Are you banging the tennis ball against the wall? I like the where you're going with this. Tw- 20 times yeah. in a row, huh? Yeah. So, Tw- 20 years? Is that what you're going with? 20 years finishing nope. above the scum? No? Nope, no. Nope. Nope. Uh, here's where I'm going with it. The, the McEnroe-Borg rivalry was just classic. The Ferguson-Wenger rivalry. Mm. Uh, encompasses um, Wenger's just teams carved out of granite with power, speed, and a level of football. 
um, where both sides can think they were the better club and the better team. They'll look at their accomplishments and their trophies, and we'll look at our accomplishments and trophies, but we'll also know that we played the better football and we had the more incredible players and that we were doing something that was shaking up the world and that the whole world was looking what we were doing. And yet year after year, they'd come back at each other. And that's what made the premier league. It wasn't, it wasn't Ferguson. Even if you think he's the greatest manager in premier league history, he's only the greatest manager because his greatest rival was Arsene Wenger. And they went back and forward and back and forward. And like all classic rivalries, they under, I tell you, if there was one, people say if I could meet one person, if I could be in one conversation, or uh, I think in that one I'd actually shut up even if I saw a great chance to make a one-liner smart-ass comment. If I could pour the wine for Ferguson and Wenger when the two of them go and get shit-faced one evening, <laughs> now that he can truly relax and talk about all the stuff and like really get into it, you know, like the, the Roy Keane... Uh, Vieira conversation where there's a respect between rivals that nobody else gets that they have a bond you know you have a bond between husband and wife there's a completely other but deep deep level of bond that I would just love to be a a wine pourer during okay as I made sure it's a bit um yeah. it's a bit like Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty really what would Sherlock Holmes be without Professor Moriarty um yeah you know unreadable so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except, and I don't know how to break this to you. They're not real, so they can't. They can't sit down and talk or do anything really because they're fictional. Um, Paul, disappointment. Um, I kind of feel uh, there was still real air in the balloon um, until the Fabregas, uh, Nazri summer uh, sale when we were so hopelessly unprepared to let them go and never recovered from it. To me, that disappointment that I think that was the first summer where we started to see that things were beginning to move quicker than he could. You you could still see the 2007-8 dream alive summer after summer, team after team, uh, as he struggled to get it back to the promise we saw in 07 and 08. And you could see ways of getting there and ways to strengthen. But but when we let that go that summer, and when he didn't really have the plan to ever get back there again, um, that and the 2014 summer where we didn't respond either. Was that the one where you just bought check, no outfield players? Um, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it'll be and interesting. To me, that was... Yeah. That yeah. was that was more of the same in a way. It was just kind of a lower, a, a lower descent on the trail where he was still in touching distance. You could still argue he could turn it around, but the peloton was pulling away, kind of thing. Yeah, you know, it'll be interesting to read that book. He said he's going to write someday because he makes that comment that summer of you know you can't sell Samir Nasri and and Cesc Fabregas and claim you're still a big club. And then they do it anyway, and I, I, I will love to find out a little more or would love to someday hopefully find out a little more of what the power struggles were like behind the scenes because we have always assumed Arson has total authority, but there were certainly a couple head-scratching moments where you think that surely that can't be the decision he's taking. So I'd be curious to find out. Um, Clive, do you, have a, do you have a nomination here, or do you just want to uh, 
say Ibid, uh, Tim's encyclopedic recitation. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm, obviously I'm fighting for scraps here, right? So a little bit, a little bit different. But um, what I will say on the on the change theme is that you know a lot of people call Wenger quite arrogant these days because of, he won't adhere to our wishes. <laughs> and um, but actually, when he was at the peak of his powers in 2004, he did the most unselfish thing. He could have decided to hold on to various players, but he decided, you know what, I need to go another way. This club needs to grow. And we started the staging project, which he was a big part of. So basically, at the peak of his powers, he threw away the opportunity to load top-class players, which we could have afforded, into that team to, to keep building on what he'd already achieved. He decided to go backward to build a club for all of us for the next hundred years, right, which is not well going to go away. And I, I think that takes a hell of a lot of um, understanding that you are not the most important person in the club. The club is the most important. Uh, so how we manage that change of the stadium, and don't forget, other teams are doing this now, and who do you think they have learned from? Tottenham have done this. They've done exactly the same with Arsenal. They've learned from our mistakes. They're charging the same prices, if not a little bit higher. They've added some modern technology into the stage and made it retractable. Where do you think they learned this from? Only one club showed the foresight in the centre of London to do what we did at a time where we basically had the best centre forward in the world, the best centre midfielder in the world, and the best centre half in the world, all in one team and with a league team, league season undefeated. That, to me, takes a hell of a lot of self-confidence, humility, and not not caring about oneself. Right? So that, to me, is what he remembered for. I, I agree with everything Tim has said. And, Paul, your point about Cesc Fabregas, I believe Cesc Fabregas was his perfect player in Wenger's ideal, and that boy broke his heart. That's my opinion. I don't think it's ever been the same and since he went away. I, I totally agree, by the way. And, and I, I think that, that his heart, he proved his heart was broken by not buying him back from Barcelona. I mean, you yeah. could say it's tactical. We had Ozil, it was Ozil's team now, but I, I think he was heartbroken. Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me. Benga has a philosophy in how you play. You, and basically, Fabric has um, alluded to that. Hold on. You need a sip of that wine? Get a good sip. <clears throat> good sip. Stain the lips. There you go. That'll do it. Um, and you're I'm back. back. I'm so back. I'm back. Yep. Now the wine went down the wrong hole. So basically, Fabregas... <laughs> do, you, do you want to specify so Fabregas... which hole that was? Because I, I think you mean the wrong tube. Hopefully not oh, the yeah, wrong yeah, hole. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so basically, do you remember the goal at AC Milan, Tim, when Fabregas whacked it from like... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I remember yards. that too. I'm sure Paul does as well. You don't have to just talk to Tim about things that happened, uh, yeah. happened less recently I'm, I'm, than I'm, yesterday. I'm, I'm sorry. I've got I've gone all island mentality took over there, right? So. <laughs> Um, so basically, when he ran to the sideline to Wenger, I'm, I looked at that. I looked at his face, and that night was the night. That was his ideal: young players going to a big stage, playing Wenger football and dominating. And it was beautiful. Right, all unknown players that he built up. It was beautiful. I, I felt he was happy at that point. And so that's what I'll, uh, that's what I think he will stand for. For me, the stadium. Lots of people don't like it. I think it, I think it, my stage in life. I like it. Atmospherically, I think once you add the right people into the club, atmospherically it will change. If we can do things with safe standing, it will change again. So the future of the stage and the foundations are laid, and he laid them at a time when he was at his peak and could have gone anywhere in the world. As for disappointments. 
I will go to football. I'll go to football moments. I, I won't dwell on the last few years because, you know what, there's, there, there's no point. We've, we've, we've analysed it to death. There were a couple of moments, and I absolutely agree with Tim about 2003. The 1919 that lost out in the semi-final of the FA Cup to Manchester United, they were as good as Manchester United, in my opinion. And little details like Anelka's goal in the semi-final, that that had been allowed. We'd have won that game. And Man United would have not have won the treble. And who knows what happened in the league. Man United get the breaks. And they end up winning the treble. And they have the best team in the almost British football history. I don't think we were anywhere. We were really close to them. And that team was forgotten. So that was a missed opportunity. 2003, we were too self-indulgent. We should have won three leagues in the trial. In 2004, we should have won the European Cup. But I've got to say, the moment, there's two moments, really. Chelsea... And Champions League. That one. Oh, final. God. It still hurts. What? It still hurts. I cannot, you know, walking from the stadium to Finsbury Park to station, I swear to God, I did not hear a single word on that journey. Not a word. And it was just like a death. That was that. We all knew that was our moment and it had just been snatched away by not quite prioritising with the FA Cup appropriately. And the Champions League final w- was sad. But it was all it was all it was almost overwhelming. I was there in Paris. It was it was sad because I think he deserved it. But if I think back retrospectively now, two thousand and four Chelsea quarterfinals, Champions League, that's the moment when I had to sit back and say, Hold on, mate, have you quite got this right in your life? Is this taking over? Because I was I was broken hearted and I needed to reevaluate after that game. And so, um, so yeah, but that's just a moment in football, and that will happen. That will happen again, yeah. no doubt. But um, what you know, what, hey, a club like Arsenal, memories. a club like Arsenal isn't going to have the best team in the world very often because we're we're big, but we're not that big. And we had the best team in the world, and to lose in the quarterfinals with the best team in the world was not acceptable. Do you guys mind if I quickly do my um my best achievement and biggest disappointment just real quick? Yeah, go go for it, mate. Um cuz I I'm, I'm kind of surprised none of you picked this for achievement and it's kind of shocking to me that we made it through all of you and no one picked it, but I'd say the Invincibles. I mean, that just seems obvious. <laughs> okay. 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 Right. Can, can, you, can you fight someone, Dan Sky? <laughs> you, you can send me the muscle emoji or something, the punch emoji. Uh, no, I, I mean, I, th- I think the, the best achievement, <laughs> other than the obvious Invincibles one that none of you mentioned, um, yeah, I, I think since I'm not going to pick stuff that you guys have already picked, um, you know, the, the great football, the great players – um, certainly some of the great finishes and memories. Maybe it is the, the high wire act, the Houdini act of staying in the top four, staying relevant in the conversation, making some runs in the Champions League, playing some really attractive football in that period from 2006 to, to 2014 um, or 2012 when, you know, I know we still had a top four wage bill, but we couldn't really spend, so we had to tie our players down. We were using a lot of youth, you know, project youth, banter era, whatever you want to call it. Some of those squads, when you look at them now, the fact that he got as much as he did out of them, I think is really a, a testament to his ability to motivate a group, to make them feel close-knit and together. And I think I think it was also where Arson finally lost a little something at the end of that. You know, you go to the 8-2, and it's really the crumbling of that project. And I don't know that he's ever really gotten his hands around the idea of buying stars and players that don't necessarily get on in the the dressing room or don't feel like a unit. I mean, I think even more than the Invincibles, if you really sat down with Arson and said, what team did you love? I bet he loved those teams of Fabregas and Rosicki and and Van Persie and, you know, the, the... 
the teams that were his guys that he kind of brought through the ranks and they banded together at a time where they felt like the underdogs when Chelsea was spending and United could spend and we couldn't spend, but we were still going toe-to-toe with them to some extent. Um, I I think he deserves a lot of credit for defying gravity uh, in a very challenging moment. And I think my, my biggest disappointment... You know, and and th- there are a few. I mean, the Champions League you mentioned that—that's a huge one. I th- I think coming second to Leicester is a big, big, big one. Arsene Wenger adding one more Premier League title to his resume. I mean, may may change the future. He may not be leaving right now, um, and change the profile of the club. And surely, when we beat Leicester that day with the "There's your fairy tale," um, the sort of apocryphal um uh commentary i think i think it was all set up for us to win the title there and to have the be- the, the clearly better team i mean you can't say that Leicester had a better team they didn't and for us to to go from that point to not be able to see it out and, and really collapse again much like we did sort of in 07 08 where we should have won it as well i think that's really disappointing so those would be my two i, I want to do something quickly before we start to look ahead a little bit but Paul wants to uh, say more because uh, he, he uh, considers his contributions to be more important than anyone else on the pod. So, uh, Paul, would you like to add about 10 seconds uh, more to this topic? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to quickly say I realize I stole my great idea for the rivalry from Miguel Delaney. I just remembered I read his headline, the one about the Borg-McEnroe rivalry. So. No, hey, props to Miguel. No one, no one, no one was going to pick oh, up on that, man. Just, just look. Uh, I believe, I, I believe, as Kanye said recently on Twitter, everybody's ripping people off and imitating people, and it's all cool because that's art or something like that. He had a tweet. You want me to read the Kanye tweet? I'll read it for you. No, that's good. No, no. Oh, I thought it's very, I thought it's very noble, very noble, Paul. Well, said. well, I just realized afterwards. I'm like, hang on, didn't I read? That here, here, this you go, here you go, Paul. This will make you feel better. Too much emphasis is put on originality. Feel free to take ideas and update them at your will. All great artists take an update. So there you go. Little okay. little life wisdom from well, Kanye. That's what okay. I was doing. Well, thanks yeah. for being honest. Um, okay, real quick, I want to do this. We'll do it backwards so Clive doesn't have to pick at scraps, um, as he said last. So, Clive, I'm going to give you three eras, and I want you to letter grade, American-style letter grade, um, uh, each one of these eras, maybe like a sentence or two as to why you give them that letter grade, but not like a deep dive. So 96 to 04, what grade do you give Arsene Wenger for, for the work he did during that era? Oh, that's got to be a straight A. Right, it's all about it's all about football. He he, he came in. He um he um he was one of the first foreign people to come to the league, and then he just started to dominate. And he he changed other people played against him. Right, he mm-hmm. he made he made Alex Ferguson buy Jemba Jemba. That's got to be one of his biggest achievements, right? <laughs> Touche. Because he um, because he couldn't handle us. Yeah, uh, P- Paul, ninety six to oh four, grade ninety six to oh four. Well, I mean, it's got to be a plus. I mean, there's no other option. I mean, it was just he changed everything for the club and for the league and for the rivalries and for people's expectations of what a football, any an English football team should be doing. Uh, Tim, 96 to 04. Uh, I'll go with an A um, for all the reasons uh, Clive and Paul have said. I'd probably stop short of an A star for what I said earlier. I, I, I think that we should have won a bit more in that period. But that in itself is a testament to my estimation of the team he built in that period. And that's the, see, that's the tough thing. I, I almost want to give an A minus, but it's, it's unfair because I'm giving that because it was such a dominant team that I say, look, look at the United of that period. 
They won the Champions League. They weren't better than us. We didn't. You know, we, we went out in the quarters with the team that was better than Manchester United. In an era where Manchester United had won the treble, I think there should have been another league, another FA Cup, and a Champions League in that era. Now, again, I realize you're being, you're splitting the finest of gold spun hair at that mm. point. Um, but it's hard. I, I also think it's it, it's fascinating. There's potentially the seeds of, of Arson's brilliance and maybe his, his Achilles heel in it, in that you still get the sense for all the winning. It wasn't all about trophies. It wasn't, it's never always been all about winning for But him. he That's, wanted the Champions think, League, Paul. I mean, I, I think we, he wanted it he so bad. I, you know, yeah, but the one thing he wanted more than all of that is to be true to his he ideals, wanted, philosophy. Mm-hmm. He wanted to play uh, pure football. Yes. His, his conception of pure football was more always more important to him. He <clears> saw that as coming first, and he would never sacrifice that for what he thinks should follow from that. And and it's it's, it's his brilliance, and it's what we love about him. And what had him stay at Arsenal instead of going to other places, what had him make the choices he did all... Yeah. What had him yeah. not go after star names, what yeah. had him not sacrifice the short term for the long term. Yeah, I, look, I, I think it's hard for me because a bad Chelsea team won won the Champions League. A, a mediocre to bad Liverpool team won the Champions League. And United, while being very good, a United we were better than won the Champions League. It's it's disappointing to me that he didn't, but maybe giving him an A- minus there is overly, overly picky. So let's go to, uh, I think, a, more, a much more gray area era 05 to 12 so uh 2005 to 2012 tim what do you think uh letter grades uh i'd give it a b um i i do think in some ways it was some of his best work on the other hand um i think in a modern context you know i know there's a lot said like oh he got us into the top four with shamak and danielson and and players like that and, and that's very true at the same time the level of competition we were being chased down by, you know, Harry Redknapp Spurs, who were all right, but nowhere near the vintage of this Tottenham team. Aston Villa, Bolton on one occasion. Um, so I, I don't think the level of competition was quite the same as it, as, as it is now. I, I think I don't think those teams would finish in the top four in a modern context. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd give it a B because of everything that that kind of came around it. I do think they could have won a trophy in that time. And again, they should have won the league in 2008, but you know, let's not rouse sleeping dogs and everything. What a team that was. What a team that was. It broke up (laughs) way too soon. And I think it changed the whole trajectory because Adebayor went mental. Eduardo was lost to injury forever. Riziki was lost to injury for 18 months. Hleb decided to up and leave out of nowhere. I mean, that, that was a special team that just got thrashed apart. That was the next challenging team, the the next team that was built to challenge, and and like you say, it was gone after a year. So, yeah, it, it, like you say, it's a grey area, but I'd, I'd give it like a good solid B, maybe a B plus. Okay, uh, Paul. Yeah, I'd go in the B plus A minus area, which I know is high based on achievement, but based on my theory that Arson was giving us art, um. There was it like it was wonderfully romantic at times, highs and lows, and kind of fighting against the impossible, the impossibility of it all. The the Barcelona rivalries, the 0708 season, um, you know, it, 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 it makes for great music. It great makes for great art. 
and it was an absolute fucking trip to be part of. Um, so I'm going with A minus because of I don't hate that supporting the artist's yeah. intent. No, I I don't I don't hate that at all. I mean, look, at the end of the day, sport is based on results and trophies, but. Only one team wins the league every year. One team wins the FA Cup. One team wins the Champions League. So, you know, I mean, realistically, the other teams have to have something they care about. Now, top four can be something you care about. He delivered that all those years. But also, loving the players you're watching, loving the football you're watching is is part of that. So, you know, I, I, I think that's totally fair. Still. Yeah, sure. So, so Clive, I mean, do you have uh, do you have a letter grade for us for 05 to 12? I could say that, but you know me, I've got loads more going on in my head. If you look at this period, right, this period is probably the most complex period in our history because this is a time when we started to lack clarity. We had this period where we had the ground and we suspected we had no money, but we weren't sure. The messages were mixed. We had changes in the boardroom. Gazidis came in 2009. And this was the moment when the club started to disconnect from the fan base so from a football perspective the boys are absolutely right it's in it's in the b range but then when you think about all the intangibles that we are not really clear on about how i wonder how close financially we came if we didn't have those goals at west Brom by kashelny etc and those late top four finishes i wonder where we would have been financially uh, where the club could have been and how close we sell to the wind and if we, and i think if we had that detail this may be the period where he gets an a plus because how we manage that squad we're under those financial constraints which none of us really know but i suspect one day we're going to find out and it's going to shock us and um and i think so i will probably give you on the pure football i mean the b range Looking forward, projecting forward, this could be the most successful, most important period in our history that he saw us through. And I think that will potentially come out in the future. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I'm going to go A minus there. And I look, that period encompasses the uh, League Cup final loss, which was dreadful. It encompasses the title calamity collapse in 07 08, um, which I think. A little bit of that has to come down to the Eduardo injury at Birmingham. But, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things to love about that period. Look, Cesc Fabregas, I, I realize he's a divisive figure for Arsenal fans, polarizing figure. He is still, <clears throat> to this point, one of my favorite ever Arsenal players under Arsene Wenger. Mm. He's right up there. And that was the heart of his best years. That was when Cesc Fabregas was the best player in England, when he was one of the best creative midfielders in the world. And he was just a joy to watch. And... I have sympathy for Arsene because he builds that 07-08 team. He's got something special, and it gets broken apart after one season. He builds another team after that. You know what it reminds me of? The Monty Python skit. We built the first one in the swamp, and it fell down. And we built the second one, and it fell down. The third one fell, burned down, fell to the ground, second in the swamp. But the fourth one, um, sorry for the accent. But, I mean, really, he, he built a great team. It got torn apart. He builds another team. Nasri leaves. Sesk leaves in the same summer. He gets 30 goals out of Van Persie, loses them to Manchester fucking United. I mean, how many times can you get the heart and soul of your team ripped out without anything you can do about it and without the real resources to I mean... How's Arsenal supposed to buy a 30-goal striker? You just can't do it. Um, you, you can't replace the things he lost. There's no replacing Cesc Fabregas. He was the heart and soul of the team. There's no replacing Robin Van Persie. So I, I have a lot of sympathy. I think he, he accomplished plenty in that era to feel good about. And while I look at that 96-04 to period with so much love and appreciation for what he got, I can't help miss the stuff that we didn't get. 
but I feel kind of the opposite about that period. So let's go back real quick the other direction. Clive, we'll start with you. This is, I think, the much more <laughs> challenging one. 2012 to 2018, letter grade. This A is the, 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 the Ozil. <laughs> yeah, A plus. The, well, it's the Ozil era. It's the dropping out of the top four era. It's the falling behind Spurs era, but it's the three FA Cups era. So where do you, where do you put it? Yeah, I'm in the C. I'm in the C plus range, right? And um, because this was the period when I felt we started to the game became too big for one man. This when the model was being tested. This was when I don't think he was ready for the explosion in football, the explosion in finance. I don't think, I don't think the club had an eye on their competitive landscape. And what's changed during that period? was that there were more people that wanted what we had. They saw what we did and they said, let's do an Arsenal and let's do it better. And um, that's what happens. You have to keep an eye on your competitors. And I felt we didn't. I felt we did a lap of honour when we got to the stadium. We was in the Diamond Club drinking our Sancerre wine, tap ourselves in the back saying, what a great job we have. Let's start paying ourselves for a couple of years. And let's start paying our people, our Arsenal people with our values. And let's not worry because we'll always be in the top four. And then they thought, damn, this is getting hard. And that's when they realised the game was moving very quickly. And I think that period is a period of... when my. This is when I really wavered. Because I've always thought Arsenal have shown great foresight. I've always been ahead of the game. And I felt we slowed down. And um, hopefully you know, hopefully today is a, the start of the change in that. So, yeah, C in the C range, mate. C range, mate. Paul. What do you give it? 2012-2018. Uh, I think that's a pretty good analysis by Clive. I really feel, I mean, you can see the packs pulling away uh, in that period. You got your three FA Cups, but they were almost kind of aberrations. Uh, ex- exclamation points at the end of funky seasons. Um, so I think something in the C range is about right. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there were times when we... You know, especially the first few years out of there, I'd almost split into two periods up to, say, 2015. I think that's when it took a sharp, sharp turn down after that. You, you know, that could have been B, B plus-ish range had we uh, turned the curve in the right direction from there on. But I think we lost the plot from 2015 onwards. Yeah. Uh, Tim, great. Yeah, I. so I think... Think I'm somewhere between a C plus and a B minus. I I agree with what Paul said there. I think when you look at 2014, should have been a real building block. Um, that should have been the right. We're we're back. We're we're winning stuff. But then, so the the problem with kind of grading this era, if you take it in isolation, um, let me just read a, a tweet here from Alistair Brookshaw. I believe he's done some work for Arsenal Vision, and it says, goes without saying, the first half of Arsenal's career was extraordinary, but the irony is that if we win the Europa League this season, his last five seasons might actually be a pretty tough act to follow too. And if you take this in isolation, you know, 2013-14, all right, we finished fourth, but we led the league until about February and won the FA Cup. 14-15, we finished third and won the FA Cup. Like, my word, you'd take that this season, wouldn't you? Um, In 2015-16, we finished second. Okay, we know that's behind Leicester and everything around that. And and so, you know, 
it, it's when you take it in isolation, it's it's actually not too bad. And even last season, when we had that, you know, slip out the top four, we still at least won the FA Cup, which I know was a, maybe a bit of a consolation prize in the modern context. But you know, if Chelsea are probably, you know, Chelsea are on course to do that this season. Spurs um, are Tim. Spurs are on course to finish third, potential FA Cup. Mate, yeah. there'll be DVD, there'll be a million DVDs printed by yeah, the next morning, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. So let's not start measuring isolation. ourselves by their by their uh, goals. Though, no, okay? no, no. <laughs> but but even Liverpool, even Liverpool, if sure. Liverpool, all right. I mean, if they, the cup they're in is in the Champions League, so that's different. If Liverpool <laughs> finished third and won the FA Cup this year, you know, everyone would be going mad. There would be, you know, oh, Liverpool are back. This is, you know, and don't get me wrong, it would be a good season for them because they're back on the up. But the, the problem for us is 12 to 18 kind of represents a bit of a drift. Um, and that's the problem. So that, that's why I find this, this one the hardest like to grade of all. So I, I think Tim, I'd can probably I, can go I, can C+. Plus. You, know, you know what, mate? That's, that's a great point. And, and you got me thinking, <laughs> why is it our achievements get viewed in such a negative way? When it, if the same achievements happen to somebody else, they are viewed because as... Because we haven't changed the manager. I think it's that yeah. simple. I mean, he set the Liverpool, standard. Go go undefeated, win the league three times, you know, yeah. build one of the best teams in the history of English football. So, you know, I'm sorry, Arson, but you get graded against your own success. And, and you know, the, so the other thing, um, I'll try and do this quickly. With, with Liverpool and Spurs at the moment, I was having a conversation with someone last night about um, if you're not going to win the league every year it's quite important to have, call it a brand, a philosophy, a project, whatever pretentious title you want to give it. That's quite important. Liverpool and Spurs have not won the league and they're probably not going to for the next five years or so, right? Like, it wouldn't be a huge shock if I came back from the future and said Liverpool win the league next year, but you'd be a bit surprised, right? They're, they're probably not going to do it. But what's kind of different is they've got a clear style of play. They've got a clear recruitment policy. They've got a manager everyone's behind. They're playing an exciting brand of football. And it's exactly the same for Spurs. What Arsenal have lost in this period, uh, 12 to 18, is something a bit intangible. It's the brand. It's the style of football. So when we talk about the period that preceded that, you know, Project Youth, that was the brand. That was the project. And even if everyone wasn't on board, everyone understood it. But we've, that's what we've lost. We've lost something intangible. And Spurs and Liverpool, even though they are not much more successful at the moment than we were, they've got that something intangible. And that's why yeah. it makes this period so difficult to, to really critically look at. Yeah, and let's be honest. If it weren't for the three FA Cups, and I know that's kind of like saying if it weren't for my $10 million, I'd be broke. But like, if it, if it weren't for the three FA Cups... Um, this would be a D minus, you know, I mean, it's, it's a terrible era otherwise. And I think, you know, all you have to do, go back and read blogs and read articles the day we signed Mesut Ozil to start that era, that 2012 to 2018 era. And it was Arsenal are back. This changes everything about the club. This is a new Arsenal, us, you know, banter era over wealthy Arsenal era starts. This was Ivan Gazidis puffing out his chest and saying, we can compete with the likes of Bayern Munich. This was supposed to be the the ascension this was supposed to be the coronation period for the project that we had built at the emirates and that never happened and with 
with Alexis coming in and Ozo coming in, I think we underperformed. And let's face it, you play 38 league games, so your league season is always going to drive the narrative behind the season you're having, right? What, so, yeah. what an irony, though, that we're talking about the last part of Wenger's reign wasn't a failure silverware-wise. In fact, we probably overachieved, but it was a failure ideology-wise. Ironic, yep, well one, said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's really well said. It's and, the, and It's the art that has suffered, really. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. funny, because Clive, Clive is politely standpoint. typing in the chat area, can I come back in, and you guys are just coming back in. So, Clive, <laughs> no, Clive okay. come the fuck back in, man. What do you got? <laughs> no, no, this, this stuff is it's just, it's just brilliant. It's brilliant context, right? And um, I think the point about the brand, I think that is so key you can do something but if the brand isn't seem to be changing and new and the project isn't fresh and and the manager hasn't got a, a, a slim suit on then it's not okay do you see what i mean and i think this yeah, is it's, a, called, it's this called is groundhog a, season no you know there's yeah. nothing worse in football than stasis or equilibrium that nobody likes that <laughs> But when you, you know, the, the the tweet that Tim read out earlier, that's like shook me to my boots, right? Because if you look at it, we 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 analyze, we look at analytics. If you look at it in the hard facts, over the last five years, that's a that's a that's a big that's a decent record. If the if the end of the season happens as we expect it to, or or hope it will happen, so it does make you think. Okay, it's really wrapped up. Football is really wrapped up in emotions, and no matter what's happening, it's how it makes you feel. And if the people around the club don't make you feel right, no matter what's happening, you don't feel it. You don't feel it in the same way. And what's happening in the club right now is people are not feeling it. This, the, the ground is there. The team is playing. They win most of the home games. We're not feeling it. So people are not turning up. They're making other choices, right? And so I do think what Tim started there is really what we need to fix and we start to project forward, how can we get that brand back? And as we are talking here about the things that we love and liked, we are talking about periods when that brand and that clarity was absolutely clear. The first period, we knew what we were getting. The second period, even though it was Project Youth, we knew what we were getting. There was some clarity disconnecting with the fans, but on the football pitch, we knew what we were getting. We've lost that clarity. We've lost that brand. If they fix that, we got a chance. Yeah, and, and I think that's well said. I also think that 2012 to 2018 is the first time I looked at Arsene Wenger's football tactically in terms of the way he approaches the game and thought, this is no longer relevant. This is no longer um, competitive football. With the he, he seemed for the first time to have lost step with contemporary football management and coaching. That watching him go up against... Mourinho to a lesser extent, but Guardiola and Klopp and Pochettino and and uh, Conte, his football just seemed like it was it had become anachronistic. And I I think it's the first think, yeah. Do you think do you think it's the football or do you think it was the quality? No, I, I of of player. I don't. I don't think it's the quality of player. I genuinely don't. I look at Liverpool's team right now and our team right now, and I think that. You're splitting hairs to say that that Liverpool are better, and maybe they are, but they're not semifinal of the Champions League and rock solid second or third best in the league while we're sixth and and in the Europa League. I I genuinely believe that his approach to coaching and tactics and and preparation 
showed themselves to be starting to become anachronistic. Look, he's been in the game super, super long. And eventually, at some point, all of us in our career will stop being able to innovate or change or update or modernize to stay contemporary with what's happening in our industry. Yeah. Um, like like it's happening for me with podcasting, uh, literally, as you're listening right now. Um, but so I, I think it was the first time that, that that really seemed to happen. And that's why I'm glad he's choosing this time to step away. Because, look, yeah. results aside, what you can't bear to watch is someone who you love, who used to be great at something, doing it when they're not great at it anymore and i'm starting to suspect that that maybe he he is not able to be a great coach anymore and that that happens to us we all hit an age in a career where that happens so let let's do this let's look forward we've done a lot of looking back let's look forward and and tim will start if you want to hypothesize or prognosticate about who you think comes in next or which names excite you you certainly can but also what it means for the club now how does the club change and what does the club need to do now in this period as we move from Arsene Wenger to the next, I can't even imagine saying this, to the next manager? Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult one. So I really, really, I, I don't even have a gut feeling on who the next manager is. I, I think, like I said earlier, you know, this is all a massive surprise and not a surprise all at the same time. And when you look at it coldly and rationally, um, you know, I spoke with a uh, guy i sit with uh, every every home and away game who's a, a massive unashamed i uh, don't like you to use the phrase akb um but hugely hugely you know reverent and reverential and respectful of, of arsene wenger and uh, he said you know well I, I i've thought since uh, last year this has been in the works just look at what's been happening you know um all these people being appointed um took ages to get the two-year contract sorted and i was like yeah, I, you know, in my rational mind, I thought that that's what's going on, but I just didn't believe it would happen somehow. So I, I don't think I've ever quite believed enough in the idea that Wenger was going to go this summer to really process who the new who the new man's going to be. I think if they've made the announcement, I think they've got him, whoever he is, um, or at least um, most of the way there. Um, all I know for for sure and I, I don't think this is any secret or any kind of insider information is that Ancelotti wants it um, and that he hasn't taken a, a job since Bayern because he's been he's had an eye on this and he'd like to take it whether he's the man Arsenal go for I don't know I mean personally that you know I, I think I'm probably quite a cautious decision maker generally that's who I'd go for um, I know people aren't excited by Ancelotti. I know the Bayern thing has stained his reputation a little bit. I know he's got this reputation about not changing anything and you know perhaps being quite similar to Arsene. I actually don't see that as a massively bad thing. I don't think that Arsenal need revolution per se in in terms of the management. I think just a different voice will 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 be a revolution in itself and. Um, you know, I've said on this podcast many, many times, I, even, even though we're having like the Moyes season now, I still expect, I still think we might have to be a bit patient about the next season, two seasons. Um, I don't think there'll be, you know, any worse than this one, for instance. But, I, you know, I don't think Arsenal, Arsenal are going to go sweeping to any league titles anytime soon. I think, you know... We might get back in the race for the top four in a more meaningful way, but it, it's still, it, no matter how much planning you do, it is still a big thing to lose someone like Arsene Wenger. And 
that kind of personality and you can do all the planning you want but it's still a shock when it happens right it's like having a heart transplant or something you can you can do all of the prep that you like all of the mental and physical preparation but when it happens it's still a shock yeah and you know you've still got to be in bed for, for like a couple of months to recover um, sorry that's like that's that's a horrible analogy but you, you know what i mean I, I, I still think no matter how much an arsenal i think have, have at least tried to do something with the, with the structure which is commendable well it it remains to be seen how well they've done but i i still think there's going to be a little bit of a tremor there which is why if i was making the decision and thankfully i'm not i would go for ancelotti for one season maybe two keep things ticking over he's got the experience, the gravitas, the personality to be the guy that follows the legacy manager. And then you bring someone in after him um, to be the guy that follows the guy that follows Arsene Wenger. You know, that that is the way I play it. But I admit that I'm I'm a completely cautious individual mm-hmm. um, like that. And I make cautious decisions. So that's, See, that's probably what I'd go with. I totally get where you're coming from, Tim. But my argument would be there's never been a better time to roll the dice with absolutely no risk yeah. than right now. Right? I mean, my, yeah, go ahead. Michael sorry. Cox said exactly that. Um, the Totally Football Show released like a little 30-minute Wenger special. That is exactly what um, Michael Cox said. He, well, I'm he not said crediting that, him. <laughs> <laughs> he said that Arsenal should go for Arteta because he said basically they can't really do any worse and this is a good time for a brave appointment. Yeah, I mean, think and, about it. No uh, one's I, expecting I, anything, I see that. right? I mean, you, you're you not going to get a bigger personality in there. You can go with someone totally new and unproven and you, you give them a couple seasons of rope to hang themselves with, but if if the team don't respond right away, no one's expecting them to anyway. Yeah, I and and I do. I I know exactly where you're coming from, and and in the fullness of time, you might be absolutely right. But there's just a little bit in my mind that says theory and practice are two quite different things. Well, let me ask you I don't this. know why. What, what do you hope to achieve? So I, I get you, but l- let me ask you a question. Mm. Let me just push back on this a little bit more. What do you hope to achieve with Anchotti, right? Because like what I would say is, mm. sure, he steadies the ship from a, a personality-driven standpoint, right, in terms of identity, mm. but he's not going to bring any revolutionary football. I mean, you'll have players that respect no. him, but he's not going to do anything with them that's particularly revolutionary in terms of coaching that Arsene Wenger didn't do. So, like... What is the ceiling that you're shooting for by getting an Ancelotti? Just two years of staying fifth or sixth and going nowhere while we no, reset? No, 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 no. I, I think Ancelotti would probably bring us back into the top four. Oh, okay. All at right. least, at least in terms of being much more competitive and not being like out of it and done by February. Like, you know, I, I'd see him bringing us, you know maybe another 10 points up on where we are at the moment, you know, back in that conversation. I guess um, I just see him like I see Arson. I mean, do, do you not see that an analogy or that comparison being apt? I, you see, I do a bit, but like I say, I, I, I really honestly think even if the, other, the new manager is like Arson, I really think just a different voice. And, and, you know, it depends which Arson we're talking about. Are we talking about the arson that's completely lost his way, that is buying these players and doesn't know what to do with them? Or are we talking about even the arson of five years ago, um, six years ago, would get us back in the top four? And this, to my mind, is not a bad squad. Um, There's good players in it. It's just arson's totally lost his way with it. He doesn't know what to do with them. I think Ancelotti would, and, and you're right, it wouldn't be revolutionary. 
but I think Ancelotti would at least chisel them into some kind of working shape because they're a mess at the moment. Um, I think he'd be able to do that relatively quickly. And you're completely right. He is he is very unlikely to like sweep us to new heights. But at the moment, I think he'd get us a little level higher than we are. And then, you know, have him for two years and then get the next guy in who, and, and leave it in a better place. Leave it in the place that Wenger should have left it in 2014. That would be my summary, I think. Fair enough. I, you know what? My, my, my argument would be, I can't even remember what song I'm quoting now, but when you have nothing, you have nothing to lose. And it's like, let's David say you bring... Hasselhoff. That's it. When you, let's say you bring an Ancelotti and, and he claws you back to fourth. Now you have a reason to be more conservative because you're like, oh, we're, we're back in top yeah. four and we have champions. Let's not do anything too revolutionary. If you're going to take a wild swing, we'll never have less to risk taking a wild swing than we yeah. have right now. And by the I way, I realize you could, you do have some risk. You could get a Moyes type appointment where the club just plunges and now you can't attract players and you're seen as a joke. And it, but you know, I, I would hope that that would not be the case. And I, I do think the one thing that insulates us a little bit from like what happened at United United had Fergie keeping everything ticking over. And he left them with sort of a bare-bones squad, but also, I think, a very rich club with nobody who knew what to do with it. I mean, Ed Woodward is an idiot. Um, if you believe that Gazidis and Raul and Mislintat are an effective backroom staff, the next guy just has to be a coach. And that's another reason why I'm not convinced we need someone like an Ancelotti, because I think we just need a guy who, who's willing to be a coach and say, here's the tactical approach I want to take. And then those guys go kind of get the players and negotiate contracts and build a team that kind of supports that. The interesting, ironic thing is the guy who comes in next season inherits a pretty good squad. Two seasons from now, we're fucked because Oba's overage and Mkhitaryan's overage and Ozil's out of prime. And, you, you know, you walk through the team and you say, holy shit, now what? Um, it's a total rebuild at that point. Now, hopefully the rebuild happens incrementally during that time. But for right now, you got something. Paul, you want to pick up the scraps? Is there anything left to talk about that you can add, or have we pretty much hit it? And, and Clive, well, Clive when Paul's done with the scraps, you, you can then come in and, and, and really clean up. Okay, man. Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm sitting here ready. <laughs> yeah, all right, Paul. Yeah, I, I, was, I was all set till you pissed in my pool the last 30 seconds. There, I guess. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Yeah, so the reason you don't want to go with an Ancelotti, though he'd be a fine choice for other reasons, is because you want somebody to pull up his uh, pull up a seat right next to Sven Mislintat, get out the charts, get out the scouting, uh, decide on a brand of football that's pretty close to Arsenal's philosophy but has more structure, and we're in a really key two years coming up here. We've we've just signed three big contracts with um, Ozil, Aubameyang, and Mkhitaryan. We're going to have to live with for four or five years. So we've got no space to move. So whoever comes in has to, A, be able to build around them. Um, and B, needs to make smart moves uh, using the Sven Mislintat uh, mindset. So, and the Rolodex and the network and the philosophy. And they need to hit the ground running. And being from the Bundesliga wouldn't hurt any, given that you're talking about Ozil, Mkhitaryan and Obama Yang as part of the setup. You're talking about uh, Sven Mislintat, and you're talking about uh, bringing in talent at various levels. We probably have the senior guy, you know, the the name guys we're going to be 
using for the next two years. I'm not sure there's much room to bring any more big names in. So you're talking about mid-level and uh, and talent coming in, fairly well-developed talent, hopefully. But you're going to have to make a lot of good moves quickly, uh, or you're going to have, as you implied, uh, big contracts burning a hole, um, use, burning out our next two years while we were basically doing a David, a, a high quality David Moyes placement um, to get our our ship right. And I, I don't I don't see why you wait. I think you get in. It's not going to be an. It'll be the next Nagelsmann, Tuchel, somebody <laughs> like that. Somebody with somebody whose name I probably don't know. Uh, but has a really good philosophy or approach. Of all the names I've heard, I could see the Jardim one for all the reasons we could mm -hmm. all work out. I could see that fitting in neatly there. But then you come down to personality. Does when he sits down with the Sven and Raul, do, you know, does that work? Do they click? So it would. I don't think it'll take too long before the the candidates they're looking at are people we're not thinking about or talking about unless you follow Bundesliga or something like that. Yeah. Um, but it's a really key period. I don't think we can stabilize the ship. I think you just got to, you know, you, you're you at where you're at. You, you grab the situation as it is. And, you you know, in a couple of years time, Sven's Rolodex won't be what it was once. Yeah, that, that's a fair point. You, you, you've got to, he's got a lot of names and a lot of ideas that didn't get taken up at BVB and it becomes a little old hat unless you're right in the game. They got to be out there buying, buying players, looking at players, not just looking at things on paper and it'll, he'll go stale in a year or two. So I think it's, there's some really key moves coming up and it has to be the right guy that fits into the philosophy. And I think Ivan kind of hinted at it in the press conference. He, he kind of pushed back a little bit on the, we won't necessarily go for big names and Arson wasn't that famous, et cetera, which uh, I know may have meant nothing. And he probably didn't want to be creating headlines on the day, but it, it fits in with my perspective that we won't get a name unless, you know, maybe Jardim kind of fits the profile. But outside of that, I don't see us getting a name. And I don't care. I really don't. I, you know, I am not I a believer. Yeah. I'm not a believer that you need that. I, I think, you know, look, we are not Manchester United. We're not Real Madrid. We're not Barcelona. I mean, we're a special club. We're not those sides. But you, you can look at Barcelona. You don't have to look very far to see a, a club that has appointed relatively inexperienced or unknown uh, managers. I mean, look at look at Zidane. Zidane is hardly unknown, but his only coaching was what? I mean, he coached the Madrid B team, right? That was it. And then he was the, the coach of Madrid, and he's going to win the Champions League three times in a row or two times in a row, whatever the hell it is. Um, rather than a, a me continuing to show my lack of knowledge of Real Madrid, um, why don't we let uh, Clive come in here? And Clive, I, I want to get your take on where we got. I mean, look, there's some exciting names like Allegri and Jardim. There's some less exciting names like like uh, Brendan Rodgers and um, you know Luis Enrique, who I desperately do not want. Desperately, desperately do not want. Uh, but... I mean, and Rogers too, for that matter. But before you go on about uh, the manager and stuff, let me ask you this. No, 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 just because we haven't gotten to this. So I'm going to give you something fresh, and then you can just lead into okay. the manager stuff. Um, there's a big, big, some big, big decisions to be made this summer. The likes of uh, Aaron Ramsey, what we do with him, uh, Jack Wilshire, you know, Mesut Ozil just resigned. And my, my question to you is, do you think that for the players that have just resigned and the ones that have to 
Arsene Wenger, and this is a really hard-loaded question that's going to leave people angry with you no matter what you say, but do you think Arsene Wenger leaving will have those players more inclined to stay and be excited to stay? Or do you think, you know, they reported that this was shock, that the players were shocked, that the, the room was stunned and silent. I mean, do you really think they're blindsided by this? And do you think there's a possibility that, that maybe him leaving will make it tough for us to, to keep these guys happy and, and have them stick around? For, for what, number one, I don't care. Players come and go. Fair enough. Number two, <laughs> if you think an agent's going to sit in front of the chief executive and commit his player at £30 million a year to a club while not knowing the direction, yeah, we're all being stupid. So, so you think this Ozil is, knew what they were... I mean, I, I suspect you're right, but is that what you're saying? Absolutely. First thing you ask, right? It's the first thing you ask. And you, and you, and you also talk about exit plans. How long am I going to be here? What's my exit plan going to be? And the agent walks away, says, "Okay, my my client's got this money. Uh, my exit plan. If I walk away, this is my this is what they're going to need to pay me when I walk away. I can go to another club and I can end my career. That's business, right? So, please not let's pretend this stuff doesn't happen. Or why do you have agents? If I'm an agent of a top class Premiership player." of which they are like 0.000% of the country's percentile of people, you have the best people around you. You make sure these questions are asked. So, um, And there are rumors that certain people haven't signed because they don't know the situation. They won't commit until the club have done something like this today. So we'll see what happens in the near future. But players come and go, and we will always recover. So um, on to the major side of things. Um, Paul has really touched on some good points, and I don't mind scraps, by the way, because you guys get me thinking. So um, before I had this conversation, I listened to you guys talking and really covering this brilliantly. My number one choice was Allegri because he's sort of he's sort of halfway house. He's uh, he's got real stature. He has got what he did in the Champions League this year. I thought was absolutely brilliant, tactically, which we all care about on this podcast. And my leaning for football tactics, I thought the way he made the Spurs game was just stunning against a team which I felt were better than his team. And it just shows what you can do when you motivate people, you put them in the right places, and you attack people's weaknesses. And I love that about him. And he's got a stature and respect that will make players come to the club. And also, you know what I like about him? He doesn't speak brilliant English. He's learning the language, which means it can't be about him. He has to be about the footballers and how we play. And he can do that in the quiet, much like Pochettino did in his early days at Southampton. Not speaking to the press, not being the, the figurehead. And it forces the club to have depth of people to talk about football. So I, I like that idea. But I also feel that we have hired two key people in the club, in Salini and, uh, and Swen. And basically... I've got a feeling that the next manager needs to have had a relationship with them. And it just makes sense. You can't hire these people and bring in a third person that's actually unknown to them as they're trying to make their their world in our world, in a corporate world. And, and, and somebody made... with their... Clive, I think that's a great point. Especially if somebody comes in with a big reputation and it's yeah. more about their reputation than the club. And that's just, why it just I don't kills think the club. for a name. Yeah. It kills it kills the club. It kills the structure. We're building a structure to allow us to develop not just a manager, but a team of people to bring us forward. Now you've heard me talk about depth of people infrastructure for about two years now, right? Depth of people, depth, 
depth, not one man. Single point of failure. If you want to create depth, we can't bring in a massive name which absolutely annihilates that depth and doesn't give us a chance to to build and make something sustainable and make the coach's role, um, you know, recyclable. Do you see what I mean? It makes it something that we can change and the club is, it, it still goes forward. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there are two other people that's in my mind, right? And, um, and one is that guy, um, he's at, um, at Nice. Um, is it Favre? Um, Lucien Favre. Lucien Favre, thank you. Right, he's one. But the one that really, I think, has got a real chance, and he's somebody that's got the Arteta profile, but he's way better. And if I was the club, what? I would go this way. And that's Julian Nagelsmann and Hoffenheim. I think he's young. He's had time. He's achieved. He's achieved a top five place in Germany. They're close to the Champions League. He knows the Bundesliga market, which is rich and really ready to pick. He's, he would know, Sven would know all about him. So we, we, we are moving towards a more Germanic back backroom staff. Mm-hmm. And now, if I'm going to project forward and have a guess, before tonight, I'm thinking Allegri, Allegri, Allegri. The, the, the Enrique stories have come out, and I get it. I get the link to Salieni, and basically, I know he fired him at Barcelona, so I'm not sure about that link. But I look at somebody young and German. And I think that Nagelsmann is the one that I think, if I'm going to have an outside bet, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. And what it does, it buys us time, it creates a team, it gives us a chance to create a new identity, a new brand, a new culture, and no one is going to want to fire that guy in three months. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Whereas mm-hmm, Allegri, absolutely. if he loses three on the trot, we're going to say, well, you've got Allegri. He's got a Crombie coat. He's, he's been at Juventus. We're going to judge him like we judge Wenger, and he's going to be under pressure. So it gives us a chance for sustainability, stability, while also reigniting everybody, because every single fan will not want to kill a 30-year-old manager. Yeah, I, I mean? I, no, I think that's they, right, and, and there'll be a little more curiosity about what he can do. I mean, the only, the only potential is if he really stinks – like really stinks early. If the team yeah. is, is terrible early, then there'll be that whiff of Moyes about it and be like, this guy's in over his head. He wasn't ready. And people Yeah, will, and, people and, and it's up to the – and this is why I'm interested in the depth. And, and I'll tell you what, the one thing to watch in the next few weeks is how the other people that we've not heard a word from that we've hired decide to make their stamp on the football club and the fans that are all going to be watching and looking. How they present themselves. We have not heard a thing about our contracts guy. We've not heard a thing about Raul. We've not heard a thing from Sven. We don't know nothing. We know things about them that we've read. We've not heard them. We don't feel them. We have no connection to them. And suddenly we might hear and see these people. It's going to be interesting to see how they align themselves to roles and responsibilities and how they create a safe landing space for the manager. I think it's going to be fantastic to watch. I'm really excited. It's something to be excited about. There's there's going to be a lot of new conversations to be had, and and that in itself is something, just discussing Arsenal new way. Now, you did say, Clive, that you think Nagelsmann is young. Now, he's going to be 31 in July, so... Okay. So well, everyone's young to me, right? Well, all right, but but so but he's thirty until he's thirty-one. I think we can agree on that. <laughs> okay. So cool, so he's young. Right. Okay. But he's going to be thirty-one. But he's thirty until he's thirty-one. Um, Anyone so, that's smaller than my waist size is young, right? <laughs> Touche. Um, yeah, they're all young to us. Look, I, uh, I I think personally, not that anybody cares, but I I think personally the the thing that we have to be 
I think focused on and, and acknowledging here is that there's not going to be another 20-year manager of Arsenal. We are not trying to hire the next guy for two decades. Realistically, the cycles are going to be between three to five seasons at most. Um, so what we are trying to find is a guy who fits the talent we have now. And this is actually the way I think Gazidis and, and Raul need to look at it. Who can come in, whose philosophy fits the talent we have now and the talent that we are probably going to have over the next three seasons? Whoever's strategy and approach and philosophy fits that, hire them. And then as you start to rebuild the squad and as Mislintat goes out and finds players and as they start to develop a new squad and that squad starts to take some new characteristics and as that manager is ready to move on, what manager is ready to come in and do the most with the talent that, that we have at that point? And I think that's how you're going to have to start to move your cycles forward. The biggest change is that the manager will not run the club now. The person running the club now will be Gazidis, Raul, Mislintat, and the manager. The manager will have a say, but he won't be running the club. So, all right, final thing now, real quick, Tim, how will the team respond will the emotion of it be too much will there be an apathy because he's he's a lame duck manager or will this be the tidal wave of emotion that carries them to a europa league title if it's not the latter i will hunt down every single last one of those motherfuckers and chase them out of the club because (laughs) (laughs) because basically right like I said, I, you know, to buy my Atletico away tickets today, I had to phone the Arsenal box office. And I've got a friend who works in the box office and the lines are red fucking hot because everyone wants tickets now. Everyone wants to go to that Burnley game. Everyone wants to go to Huddersfield. Everyone wants to go to Atletico. So I think that gives you a clue about what the fans are going to be like and about what the stadium's going to be like. And maybe, you know, I, like I said earlier, I today and the overwhelming reaction has given me you know i think and i may the fullness of time may prove me wrong has given me hope that really everyone's going to unite behind this and i don't think ivan gazidis is silly i think the reason this announcement has come now is for that exact reason there's you know there's three home games left there's a big semi-final uh, you know, this is the best way to mobilise everybody behind this now. And I do think the fans will get on board. And basically, the, the you know, I don't know what it's going to be like in terms of when I say a minority, or what I think to be a minority of fans who aren't on board with it or whatever. I mean, what are they going to do? They're just going to be quiet in the stadium. And that, you know, it, it's almost like there's a shift in the voice now, you know, like mm-hmm. so... The, the predominant voice has been quite understandably, I'd say, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not being critical here. The the predominant voice has been, you know, we want the manager to go. That, that That's completely shifted now because that's happened. That's done. You're going to get so your now, ass beat if you start shouting that at the yeah. Emirates on Sunday or Thursday. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and rightly so. So now the predominant voice is, you know, is gratitude. This is, and I think they've done it at the right time in terms of if you do this in February or January or even March, it loses its effect. This is the absolute business end um, in terms of that semi final. And um, we've got one game to get the kind of, you know, maybe process a bit of the emotion. And then we've got Athletic and then we've got, you know, basically this is the closest we're ever going to come to turning the Emirates into any sort of cauldron. Um, You know, how much that will happen, I don't know, but I think that will happen to some degree and that everybody will get behind this. If the players cannot respond to this at this point, 
if they can't respond to actually having some fan backing and if they can't respond to um you know the the last weeks and days of a legendary manager who you know his and if you buy into the whole poetry thing his last league game's going to be against Huddersfield and the obvious link is there with Herbert Chapman if if the you know if he gets to the Europa League final against Marseille the club that hugely wronged him and pushed him towards us quite frankly and and made him leave France then you know there's there's potentially even more you know hashtag narrative and poetry and emotion if the players cannot get behind this at this point if that does not pick them up they do not belong um, at this football club or a football club of remotely comparable size. Um, every single one of those players. This, this to me, just completely shifts things. This almost takes the pressure off of Arsene now in terms of winning the Europa League, getting us back in the Champions League. He's not going to be here either way. So he, he can almost say, listen, over to you. This is your future now. This is not my future. My future's decided. Um, I don't think he'll do that because he's he's you know too much of a custodian, too much of a nice man. He he will want us to be back in there. But if he wanted to give one hell of a team talk, he could say, "I don't give a fuck. This is about you now. Um, you don't have to play for me anymore. Play for yourselves." And um, if they can't do that, or if they don't want to do that, or if that makes them freeze, then they do not belong at Arsenal Football Club, and we need a massive cull of the squad quite frankly. So um, I think there will, you know, I'm not saying we're going to sweep all before us and actually, you know, Atleti is still a massively difficult tie. Um, But if I do not see a response from those players, then fuck every single one of them, quite frankly. Yeah. I would have liked you to be a little more unequivocal in your response there, get off the fence, tell us what you really think. But you know what? Circumspection is the order of the day, I guess. So we'll take it. Uh, Paul, really quickly, um, well, let, let me just throw it to you quickly. Do you expect the players to be able to respond to this? I mean, I am I'm skeptical only because I I am not necessarily a believer that emotion at the top level of sport can carry you past ability, and I'm not convinced that we are organized enough or good enough to get past Atletico Madrid, at, Atleti, whatever. But, I mean, I, I certainly do think it'll be a motivating factor for them. Do you think this, this could be the, the jolt they need to get past them? Yeah, I think it's a highly organizing force. There's nothing more powerful than a group of people who are all 107% committed to the same cause. What about an atomic bomb? Yeah, well, that would only destroy like a a large city. And even that it wouldn't destroy. Structurally, it would destroy a lot of the structure. You couldn't um, live there. There'd there'd be the radioactive fallout. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, Chernobyl's ticking along. I hear tourism, tourism's on the up. Oh, oh, okay. People are eating. You were doing lamb fine. Again. You were doing fine, and now you're not yeah. doing fine. And then back you to your said, point. <laughs> <laughs> so I just think it's it, any emotion's a huge part of it, and especially emotion that will last. And I really think this is is going to take us through to the end of the season. Yeah, um, I, I hope so. Atleti's a tough a tough climb. Um. Unfortunately, the second game's at their location, but I, I'm sure our uh, away supporters will be in fine fettle. Uh, but I think the energy going into the game, the energy in that dressing room, 
the sense that they're on a mission. There's nothing more powerful than a mission, and I, I think that'll be the case. So I, st- uh, I still I'm think... buying in. Sign me up. I still can think... I can I just add to that something really really quickly. Please. That I heard on a podcast that um, Rafa Honigstein did um, a good interview with Grant Wall this week, and he was talking about the book he wrote, wrote about Jurgen Klopp, and he said Klopp and Ancelotti were both. Um, Sorry, I'm shitting on my Ancelotti point here. He said Klopp and Ancelotti <laughs> were interviewed for the Liverpool job and they asked Ancelotti, what, what are the first things you want to do? And he said, we need a new goalkeeper, new centre-half, new striker. And then Jurgen Klopp, so they said to Jurgen Klopp, what's the first thing you want to do? And he said, I want to get the fans behind us. I want to get everyone pulling behind us. And um, an FSG, as businessmen, as much as anything, were much more impressed by that and... You know, I, th- I think Liverpool is, again, as it often is at the moment, a good analogy for Arsenal when you're talking about emotion being a driving force. That's fair. Ah, Tim just, he just killed the point I was going to yeah, make. Yeah, so, hey, are, <laughs> since you've been picking up table scraps, let me give you something different. To, no, to, I'm cool. All, all right, cool pick those up, but I do have one final, final, final question okay. for you that, that's literally just like Go a one-sentence answer. Fire away. Okay, no, I think um, the point about emotion, watching Liverpool beat a Man City team, which is better than any team in the country, and a lot of that was driven on the first night at Anfield and the emotion. The power of emotion coming from the stands is huge, and I think it's an intangible that you just feel when you're there, and you just can't explain it, and it just happens. I walked into the stadium in Copenhagen, we played Palmer, and if you're in that stadium, that game was won, mate. That game was won at four o'clock in the afternoon when people were drunk in the park outside. It was done. It was over. When the game started, I don't care what they had, it was done. Like we had three sides of the ground. And that when that power happens and it transmits itself to the pitch, it's just something that's amazing. It's it's why we all go, it's why we all watch, it's why we all look, read, listen. And I just can't explain it when those moments happen. And and I think we are we're heading towards one. And if and if it doesn't happen, then you know the players need to wear stab vests the same, yep, right? Because they're going to get Tim covered they're, that. Yep. <laughs> they're going to they're going to they're going to get killed, right? So um, so uh, <laughs> go ahead, Elliot. Sorry. No, no. I I just I so I, I have a final just a final question that I think is is one that we will have to come to in the coming years, which is simply. How would you honor Arsene Wenger? Would it be known as Arsene Wenger Stadium? Would it be Arsene Wenger Pitch at Emirates Stadium? Would it be a, a statue outside? Would it be, um, you know, a plaque? I mean, what what is the right way to honor Arsene Wenger and his his achievements at the club? I think um, he's, he's getting a statue for certain, uh, and that'll be the way that we honor people. It's interesting that Alan Smith said today we should name the stadium after him, and Alan Smith has been a, a quite a heavy critic of Arsene Wenger for many, many years, so that, I found that quite interesting. And, and when it comes down to it, people do feel different things when the moment comes, right? So um, I, I personally would do a statue, and I, and I, the, we haven't really got ends at the club as such. We, we, we have nominal ends, but... Um, it would be nice maybe to name a stand after him. I think I think he deserves that, but not the whole stadium. There's too many millions. He's called, there's too many millions involved. And, and I will say one more thing on the on the manager thing, if you don't mind. I think um, as we look into the brand statement that Tim made, has really stuck with me. And 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 my favourite player ever was Patrick Vieira. And I know he's an unknown, but I do wonder if someone like that came in what sort of impact you could have to unite the fan base i think you know rather than look at 
and maybe an Arteta that we that's got a history or an Nagelsmann that's young but has no history with the club. Patti Vieira has an immense history and he represents in my in my opinion the most successful period in, in our history. So um And there'd be a lot of great things about it. Yeah, because because well, by the way, yeah. you wouldn't just be hiring a name. He he has a reputation for being uh, a good manager. I mean, he's building quite a reputation for himself for being a student of the game, for being someone who knows what he's doing. Not to mention yep. that I, I think, you know, not to get into this this point too much because I, I know it just piss people off. But it would be, you know, hiring not another white male manager, which you know um, would put Arsenal see, at the I, vanguard again, leading the way. You know, for, see, for the you, know, you should take up mind reading, right? And there's a, there's a discussion I'll have today online about. Saul Campbell versus Joey Barton, and it's something that no one's ever done in the in the top four, top six clubs. And I'm not saying we do it because of that, because far as I'm concerned, Vieira's colourless to me. But what a what an amazing thing that would be, right? So, um, but purely because I think he represents Arsenal Football Club and, and a lot of the fans, and he represents an era when we used to fight, and I want to see that come back. Yeah. Well, said. We, we could pick we could pick Sammy Nazari as the first lesbian. <laughs> all right, great. That's we were all done. We had a great stopping point. And Paul's like, how can I shit all over this podcast? And we don't edit this fucking thing, so that's the end of that. Look, I think um, I think I speak for all of us when I say uh, merci beaucoup, Arson. That we we uh, we adore you. We thank you for everything you've done. And that while we all believed it was time for you to go. Uh, we all feel the emotion deeply of your parting today, and we hope that you can go out on the high of winning a European trophy, delivering us back into the Champions League, but whether you do or not, um, certainly a club legend forever, and we thank you for that. Um, give us a five-star review, write nasty things, not about arson. Uh, you, you, you can write about me, write about me, you know, whatever. I always deserve them for one reason or another. Um, and, and we will still come back with another podcast after West Ham and look ahead to the Atleti tie. But it is, it is interesting times at the club. And I think at least now the conversation is going to move in a unique direction. And I welcome it. Uh, I welcome having it with uh, Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stoberto. Thank you so much, Tim. Merci. Merci beaucoup. Uh, et aussi, Paul, uh, on peut trouver Paul on Twitter à uh, Pausing in My Pants. Fucking hell, I'm putting a hot poker in both ears. <laughs> and also Clive, he's on Twitter at uh, Clive PAFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. You bet. Uh, we will be back uh, after Arsenal 10, West Ham nil. But most importantly, merci beaucoup, Arsenal.